according to history. Caesar Augustus was the first Roman emperor to issue a worldwide census or taxation. Supposedly, every 14 years after that, the Roman emperors, whichever one was in power at the time, would issue the same edict across the Roman Empire. The instruction was given to return to the home or the home city, the hometown of someone's origin, their relatives. Because Joseph was a descendant of David, he went to David's hometown, which was Bethlehem. Now at the time, Joseph and his his wife Mary, they lived in Nazareth, which was a 70-mile journey from Bethlehem. She, being great with child, They set out to take the journey. We're not sure the mode of transportation. (laughs) It might not have been a donkey or a camel. It might have been on foot. We're not sure. The Bible doesn't tell us how they made the journey or even how long it took them to get there. But we do know they made the journey. We're not even sure, ladies and gentlemen, how long they stayed in Bethlehem. They might have stayed for days. The Bible doesn't say that either. It just says that while they were in Bethlehem, the time was upon her that she would give birth. And that's what she did. We're not even sure where they were staying at the time. Some even say that they could have possibly been staying in the home of a distant relative of Joseph. All the Bible specifically says about their situation and their circumstances is in Luke chapter 2, verse 7. And I'd love for you to take your Bible and turn there, please. The taxation was made. Joseph, by law, was required to go with his family and register. So they make the journey. They arrive in Bethlehem. Here's what the Scripture tells us. Here's what we know for sure. Luke 2 verse 7, so many of you can quote this by heart. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Swaddling clothes were cloth that they would use for all kinds of things. Some have estimated that they used these cloths, these clothes, these literally strips of cloth to help and to bandage people's wounds. That's, that's interesting. Because here Jesus is the one who came to bind our wounds. They would, even, they would even, I'm told, use these rags at times to wipe off the farm animals in the barn. I'm sure they really just used what they had and what they could find. So they took these strips of cloth not even sure what color. <laughs> I know Jesus is always in our nativity scenes portrayed as being wrapped in white. <laughs> we don't know what the color of the cloths were. We just know they took these clothes. 
these, these rags and wrapped this precious little newborn. Even in one of the Christmas hymns we sing about, uh, I think it's away in a manger, it says, no crying he makes. Well, first of all, that's probably not true. I'm not sure there's ever been a newborn baby that was a healthy newborn baby that didn't cry when he entered into this world. (laughs) And while Jesus was 100% God, he was 100% man, 100% baby. And babies cry. And they do other things that I'm sure baby Jesus did. (laughs) But again, we don't like to think about that, do we? Because that seems too human. But he was very much human and very much God. And because of that, that's the only way this worked. So they wrapped his little body in those clothes. And then I want you to notice this. And they laid him in a manger. What's a manger? Well, some say, well, it's a cave. No, some say it's a barn. Well, no. A manger simply was a feeding trough. The feeding trough could have been in a cave if the owners used the, that, uh, uh, a cave to house their animals and to feed their livestock. It could have been in a barn. We don't know. But that's what they placed his little, little tender, precious newborn body in. They placed him in a feeding trough. Don't know if he was in a cattle stall. We just know Jesus was laid in something where they would pour feed or put slop or other type of food, maybe even leftovers at times, to feed the animals. And that's what they placed his body in. And that was his crib that night, that night he was born. Now the Bible gives us a very interesting statement here about why it was that they had to lay Jesus in a feeding trough. Why he was born in a place where they house the animals. It says because at that time in Bethlehem, we obviously know because of the census, because of the crowd, there was no room for them in the inn. Because of how small Bethlehem was, there really was probably just one inn. One place that was designated for travelers. At the time of this census, it's estimated, uh, according to one archaeologist and one scholar, that the the population of Bethlehem uh, was only about 300 people at the time. So then you have this huge influx of individuals traveling from all over the Roman world to their city of origin or the... Their, their hometown, and they would try. And so there possibly could have been as many as thousands of people <laughs> who swarmed on this little tiny village just a hole in the wall. I mean, 300 people, that's not real big. I can't think of a little, even a, a little. Uh, municipality, a little town, little 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 crossroads here in Wayne County that, that, that has less than 300 people in it. 
But then this huge influx of folks showed up. I think sometimes the innkeeper gets a bad rap. He didn't know. Truth is, Bethlehem didn't know. So I want to talk to you this morning on the subject. Let him in. Let him in. It was a crowded place, crowded town, crowded rooms, crowded circumstances. There was no room. No room. Think about that statement with me. No room. No room for God. No room for His Son. No room. Can I ask you today, is, 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 is our current world situation any different than that right now? I want to talk to you first of all. Let's notice the reason there was no room. Why was there no room in Bethlehem? Well, first of all, there was a logistical reason. Plain and simple, Bethlehem was more crowded than normal. It was an overflow crowd. Scores of weary travelers, weary pilgrims. They were overcrowded, overcrowded quarters, overcrowded spaces, limited spaces. If they had signs that read no vacancy, they would hang them out. They would cut the light on, no vacancy. There's no room. Bethlehem was just simply overcrowded. Overcrowded. I want to ask you a question. Is your life overcrowded? One writer writing about the busyness of our culture said, somewhere around the end of the 20th century, busyness became not just a way of life, but it became a badge of honor. Went on to say that life became an exhausting everydayathon. For those folks not retired, let me ask you a question. Don't you feel like that you're running a rat race and every day is a everydayathon, just running and running and running and running and running? Even for the retired folks in this room, which are many, even you, I've heard many of you say, man, I thought when I retired, I'd have a lot of time, to plenty of time to do what I wanted. And I'm busier now than I've ever been. Our life is crowded with schedules, time demands, appointments, places to be, things to do, things to take care of. Always on the go, always on the road, back and forth, back and forth. And it's not just the soccer moms or the little league moms that feel like that they're full-time taxi drivers. Is it? It's grandparents even. <laughs> it's all of us just busy, 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 busy. Even at church. Busy, busy, busy. Church activities. I've got this meeting to go to. I've got this event and this Sunday school party and this and that. And I've got this board meeting. And I've had this and we've got this service and this outreach and this thing on the schedule. Busy, busy, busy. Our lives are crowded. And I've heard you say, and I've said myself, as I look at my calendar, as I look at my daily schedule, I'm not sure where I could fit anything else. crowded but friend it's not only that way I'm afraid with our schedules and I'm afraid it's that way with our thoughts and our 
concerns, the things that occupy our mind and drain our attention. Man, constantly, constantly busy and constantly pulling at our thoughts and, 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 and there's so much information now and so much knowledge but we're dumber we've ever been I'm afraid we're more forgetful than we've ever been information overload our lives are overcrowded is yours Have you crowded Jesus, listen, have you crowded Jesus out? I mean, seriously. Truth is, we all make time and all have time for what we want to have time for and make time for, and that's the fact. But we've crowded Jesus out of our lives. We've crowded him out of our priorities. We've crowded Jesus out of our schedules even. Well, if he fits in, yeah, we'll do that. Now we live in a culture, in a churchy culture, in a subculture even within churches to where if somebody makes one service a month, they consider themselves faithful. (laughs) Try that Monday through Friday at your workplace, right? (laughs) What? I'm getting fired. (laughs) I'm here 20% of the time. Come on. And I know church isn't a workplace. I'm just saying it just proves the point that we treat it differently now, don't we? Well, if Jesus fits in my agenda, Jesus fits in my schedule, if his house is, you know, if it works out and we don't have this going on and that going on and this to go to and that to go to, we'll fit him in. Well, if I have time, I'll read my Bible. If I have time, I'll pray. Well, if he doesn't make me feel uncomfortable in doing what's right. Because, mm. see, I, I want to remind you that Jesus, because he's Lord and because he's King, he makes certain demands on our lives. He invades our space. And by the way, last time I checked, ladies and gentlemen, he's the only one that has the right to do that. And he does have every right to invade our private space. That was a cue that I'm preaching too long now. No. That was the devil. Overcrowded. Bethlehem was overcrowded. So there's not just a logistical reason, there's a logical reason. And it was they just simply didn't know how important that particular baby was. Now, we're not sure, we don't know. It it very possibly could have been that Jesus was the only baby that was born that night. We don't know. He may have gone unnoticed by most of the people. I mean, if your little village of 300 was overrun by hundreds and maybe even thousands of people, you probably would not notice unless you were in that particular sector or quadrant. You probably wouldn't notice that a baby was being born. And even if 
they knew, and they could broadcast it, that, hey, a baby was born. <laughs> they were oblivious to the fact that he, he was not just special, he was the unique, one-of-a-kind son of God. He was simply unnoticed. They weren't necessary, necessarily obstinate or anti-Christ or against God. They were just oblivious. You see, ladies and gentlemen, Bethlehem failed to heed the announcement from Micah 5.2, which actually names the town of his nativity. Bethlehem Ephrata, which was there in the south, there in Judea, which is distinguished in that verse from Bethlehem Zebulon, which was in the north, the northern area of Israel, up in Galilee. So God, in his infinite wisdom and goodness, even names the very tiny village where his son would be born. But they were still oblivious, clueless, we would say. They missed it. That's the reason there was no room. They were overcrowded, but then they were oblivious. A question for you this morning. How often in your day, how often in your life, in your schedule, in your daily activities, in your world, in your private world, how much do you think about God? How much, how much does he occupy your thoughts? You say, oh, preacher, that's not important, is it? Well, Psalm 10 verse 4 talks about that because of man's pride and man's self-dependence that God is not in our thoughts. How many folks in this room could it be true about that God is not in your thoughts? Again, it's not that you hate God. It's not that you're anti-God, anti-Christ. It's just you just don't think about him. Obviously, you think about him right now. You think about him today because you're in church being forced to listen to a sermon. You know, you're thinking about him right now. But I mean, when you're outside of church or outside of a spiritual activity, how much does he occupy your thoughts? How often do you think about him in your day? Is he your first conscious thoughts when you wake up in the morning? Before your feet ever hit the floor, are you thinking about him deliberately? Are you saying, now, Lord, even before I try to get out of this bed, I recognize you. And, Lord, I need you and I need your help even before I try to move. So your last conscious thought before you go to bed? Before you eat a meal, do you bow your head and recognize your unworthiness to receive from the hand of God? Listen, what, 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 how much does he occupy your thoughts in a day's time? They were just oblivious. They went about their day, went about their agenda, went about their plans and their work, and they just, God, God was in the midst of them and they didn't even know it. So we notice the reason why there was no room, but notice with me what I call the ramifications of there being no room. What does that mean? What were the consequences? What were the results of that? Well, the plain simple fact is is that they missed out. Bethlehem missed out on a unique opportunity Blessing and welcoming the incarnate God into this world. 
And as C.S. Lewis said that once in our world, a stable had something in it that was bigger than our whole world. And they missed it. God had sent them a personal invitation centuries before in the form of a prophecy that they could be eyewitnesses with front row seats to the grandest arrival in the history of the world. And they missed out on it. And I want to say this to you, friend. We're the ones who miss out when we fail to provide room for Christ. We're the ones who miss. We're the ones whose lives are more frustrated. We're the ones who struggle with sin and struggle with this and that more than than we should and could and more than we have to just because we're living life independent of God and God never designed you or me to live life independent of Him. Never. You and I were born with a God-shaped hole in our life and our conscience and our spirit and only Jesus Christ can fill that void. You weren't made to go rogue. You weren't made to fly solo. Neither was I. They missed out. You miss out on blessing. You miss out on peace. You miss out on joy. You miss out on goodness. You miss out on his love. You miss out on purpose and direction for your life. You miss out on your mission. You miss out on everything that's dear, everything that's awesome, that he wants to bless you with, and he wants to give you when you live life apart from him. We miss out. But I close with this, friend. What's the remedy for there being no room? You see, I'm thank God there's a remedy for that. There's a way to fix it. I want to let you out of jail this morning. Man, we're all finding ourselves in this place so often where our lives are so overcrowded and we're Jesus sitting in our thoughts and, and we're bound up in this. But I want to let you out of jail today because there's a remedy. You don't have to live that way, friend. Your life doesn't have to be measured by this existence at all. You don't have to just go through the spiritual motions. Jesus cannot just be present in your life. Jesus can be your ever-present reality. He can be more real to you and wants to be and ought to be and can be more real to you than your next breath. And it really boils down, friend, to one thing boils down to a personal choice a choice it's your choice we say the ball's in your court (laughs) you in the goodness of God he gives you an opportunity to decide what you're going to do Bethlehem had a choice that night and you have a choice this morning are you going to let him in Are you going to give him his rightful place? So the takeaway this morning is, remember to let him in. Remember to let him in. So how do you do that, Brother Christian? You and I can do it three ways. Number one, make room for Jesus in your day. Make room for them in your day. I'm not just talking about today. I'm so glad you're here. 
I'm glad you're here on a Sunday. I'm glad you're here at Christmas time. But I'm not just talking about today. I'm talking about every day. Because, friend, listen, every day is a gift from him. Every day is not just a gift from him for us to go and do as we please. Every day is a gift from him for us to use for his glory and namesake. You see, all time is God's time. All time is given to us by the Lord to use to glorify him. Would you make room for him every day? Practically, what does that look like? Well, it might look like, and I believe it looks like, that every day you spend time with him. Spend time with him. And thank God it doesn't have to be a long time, but it needs to be some time where you spend with him every day. You just get by yourself, you get alone, and you spend time with him. You spend time in the Word, reading the Bible. You spend time in prayer, talking to Him. You spend time just thinking about Him, meditation we call it, where your mind and heart is centered on Him and you just meditate. You're just thinking about Him, you're thinking about Him. How many days this past year? 365 days, how many days? How many days this past year did we miss this opportunity to make room for Him in our day? And I know because I've done it too. Well, I tell you what, I'm kind of busy this morning. I'll make time for them right after lunch. I, during my lunch break. And then something happens and you don't make time for them during your lunch break. Then you say, ooh, I feel convicted by that. I promise when I get home from work or when I get kids, when I, kids, when I get home from school, I'm going to make time for them and I'm going to pray. I'm going to read my Bible. And then something happens and it hinders that. And then you get into the evening time and you feel bad. You feel convicted because you hadn't walked with God that day and you hadn't read his word that day. And you hadn't really made time for him all that much. And so so you kind of feel bad and you're like, oh, after supper, I'm not going to watch any TV. I'm not going to watch Sports Center. I'm not going to do this or that. I'm not going to read the paper. I'm, I'm going to get along with Jesus, read my Bible. And then something comes up. Your kids are fighting. You know, something happens. You got to bust them up and all that stuff and break up their argument and, you know, and do the discipline. And I mean, it's just, and so, and, and, and then, oh man, I need to write that bill and get it in the mail. And so you're doing this and, oh, oh, we got dishes in the sink. And so you're trying. And then you're just worn to a frazzle. And you collapse in the bed. And then you wake up from a snore and you realize, junk. I didn't pray today. I didn't read my Bible today. I didn't spend time with Jesus today. How many times, how many times, how many times has that happened in the last 365 days a year? Probably too much, right? Too much. Oh, would you make room for him in your day? Make room for him in your day. At the very beginning, at the very outset of your day, would you prioritize Jesus? Would you set aside time for Jesus? Some have even adopted the motto, no Bible, no breakfast. <laughs> I'm not going to eat breakfast till I read my Bible. You gym rats that are there at 4.30 every morning, 5 o'clock every morning, you may want to adopt this philosophy. No Jesus, no gym. Before you go to work, no worship, 
No work. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to do anything of consequence (laughs) until I meet with God. Make room for Him in your day. That's something all of us can do. Let Him in. Let Him in to His rightful place in your day. And then number two, make room for Jesus in your priorities. Now, you know what priorities are. Those are the things that govern us. Those are the things that govern our schedule. They govern our finances. They govern our time. They govern our interests. Those are our priorities. That's the, those are the things that tell us what is important in this world and important in our life. But I want to ask you a question. Are you going to make room for Jesus in your priorities? Is he going to be important to you? Is he going to be more important this year than he was last year? Is he going to be important to you? Oh, friend, let's, let's not just give him lip service. I'm talking about let's truly make him important. Let's recognize just how important it is, he is. And I'll say this to you. He doesn't even need to be at the top of your list. He needs to be your list. See, when you put Jesus as your list... When you make him your list, he's going to factor and filter everything else out like it needs to. See, when he's at the hub, everything else is going to flow and filter and revolve properly around him. Hey, he's he's not just one little piece to your puzzle. He is your puzzle. Oh, oh. I got my Jesus piece, and I'm going to cram here. He fits in right here. No. He's the whole piece. He's the whole pie. He's God. You can't put God in a box. You can't squeeze God in a corner. God invades everything. Let him invade your life. Let him invade your priorities. Make room for Jesus in your day. Make room for Jesus in your priorities. Philippians 1.21 says, For to me, Paul said, to live is Christ. My life is Christ. My life is wrapped up in Jesus. It's all about Christ. Can you say that this morning? And then I encourage you, and I close with this, make room for Jesus, obviously, in your heart. In your heart. And some dear ones sitting in this room this morning, you've never truly made Jesus, made room for Jesus in your heart. You know about him. <laughs> you respect him. You, in some ways, appreciate him. And you... But, but you've never really made room for him in your heart. This comes from Reader's Digest, first published in December of 1966. That's a long time ago. It was the biggest event of the year in this little town of Cornwall. It was the annual Christmas pageant. Starring many of the town's people. When it came time for casting for the various parts, every parent wanted their son or daughter to be included, of course. 
on audition day. It didn't take long to match every part with just the right person. But then there was this kid named Harold. This kid really wanted a part, but because of his learning disabilities, the directors kept passing over Harold. You see, Harold was nine that year, but in the second grade. Though he should have been in the fourth grade. Most people in town knew that Harold had difficulty keeping up. He was big, awkward, slow in movement and in mind. But still, Harold was well-liked by the other children in his class, all of whom were smaller than Harold was. Though the boys had trouble hiding their irritation with Harold when he would ask to play ball with them, or any other game, for that matter, that involved winning. They'd find a way to keep him out. (laughs) But Harold would hang around anyway, not sulking, just hoping. And he was a helpful boy. Always willing and smiling. And he was the protector of the underdog. The older boys chased the younger boys away on the playground. It was Harold who would say, can't they stay and play? They're no bother to anybody. But Harold just kept popping up again and again. Asking for a part for the Christmas pageant. (laughs) Finally exasperated with no other reason to keep him out, the directors gave in, and they gave him what they judged to be a no-risk part. They gave him the role of the innkeeper who comes to the door and tells Mary and Joseph that the inn is full. It was a part with only one simple line. Little did they know that the... Stage had been set for the most memorable Christmas pageant that they would ever be a part of. The night of the pageant, you had to get there early just to get a seat. The place was packed. Backstage, the shepherds were putting on their bathrobes. (laughs) The angels were adjusting their homemade halos. And everyone was reviewing their lines. The directors were going over Harold's lines with him Over and over again, one more time, just to make sure. Now remember, Harold, remember, I'm sorry, we have no room. Slowly but surely, Harold repeated his line backstage over and over and over again. I'm sorry, we have no room. The men of the church had built a set that portrayed Bethlehem in the background A manger on the right and the inn on the left. And as Act 1 neared the end, (laughs) a weary Mary and Joseph trudged up to the inn door, desperately looking for shelter. And it was time for Harold. Joseph knocked on the inn door. Nothing happened. He knocked again. (laughs) There was no Harold. Those on the front rows could hear the director backstage whispering, Now, Harold, now! (laughs) The set began to shake as Harold struggled to get the end door open. (laughs) Finally, the door flung open and standing there in his bathrobe 
Harold listened as Joseph begged for a room for his pregnant wife. And for the first several seconds, Harold said nothing. Again, from the back of the stage came the whisper very loudly and emphatically, Now, Harold, now, say it, Harold. I'm sorry, we have no room. Say it, say it. And finally, after a long pause, Harold struggled through his line. I'm, I'm sorry. We have no room. Then he slowly closed the door. And just when Mary and Joseph began to turn away, that's when the totally unforgettable moment came. The one they'd never, ever forget. Suddenly, the stage started to shake again. As Harold came back to the door, again struggling to get the door open. And before the stunned director director could get to Harold and stop him, Harold flung the door open again and ran after the departing Mary and Joseph. And as sincerely as anybody has ever said it, Harold, in his own simple, sincere way, said, wait, wait, don't go. You can have my room. You can have my room. So I close this simple, simple message this morning by asking every one of you, Can Jesus have your room? Can he have your room? Can you have room in your heart? And room in your schedule? And room in your day? You're here this morning and you you need Jesus. I'm not going to try to manipulate him into your life. Truth is, nobody can do that. That's your choice. And that's something only you can decide. This morning, the God of heaven has come to where you are. In that same hand that was nail scarred is reaching out to you right now. Will you believe? Will you repent of your sins and believe the gospel? Will you believe Christ right now? Will you open, as we have said a thousand, thousand times, will you open the front door of your heart like you'd open the front door of your house and let Jesus come in? Let him take your sin. Let him take your hurt. Let him take your confusion. 
Let him take every single thing in your life. Let him have it all. Will you open your heart for him? Right where you sit right now, will you call on him? Will you call out to him to save you? To be your Lord and Savior? Will you confess to him that you are a sinner? That there's nothing you can do to save yourself because of your sins. And that you realize that's the very reason Jesus came to begin with. To die on the cross for you to take your place. To take your sins so that you could be saved. Will you say yes to him right now?